Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you so much, kickserveradio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and our team is comprised of the great Swede himself, Matt Svelander, winner of seven major championships, former number one in the world. He hails from Haley, Idaho. Matt's how are things in Idaho? Things are good. We just had our first snowstorm, Andy. I woke up this morning, wow. and we have about an inch of snow, so golf courses are closed. Uh, and uh, people are going to start moving indoors to play tennis, which is good for me because that's that's what I have at Gravity Fitness and Tennis, three indoor courts. So here they come. A beautiful, shameless plug to the club that he owns. <laughs> Very good. The other member of our team is Johnny Levine. He'll be joining us a little bit later in the show. But right now, I am just absolutely thrilled to introduce our special guest this week, which is another of the great Swedes of all time. He won six major singles championships in his own right add three more doubles majors to his resume, former number one in the world, one of the true greats of all time, maybe the greatest volleyer of all time. He has Stefan Edberg coming to us from Sweden. Stefan, so great to have you part of the show. Welcome. Well, thank you. Nice to be part of your show as well. So Stefan, uh, Matt and I were talking a little bit to try to prep for the show today. And I had always kind of wondered aloud how two guys who would have seemingly uh, been raised with the same influence sort of coming right after the Bjorn Borg era in Sweden would have ended up with games that were so different from one another matches is almost, almost a carbon copy of Bjorn's and yours is far from that. And then he just made a comment to me that the only indoor opportunity that you had growing up was to play on a fast gym floor, a wooden gym floor, which made me just kind of go, well, of course, that's why the guy volleys as well as he does. Talk about the evolution of your game and how the influence of playing on such fast courts had so much to do with the way you ended up. Uh, well, I think it's quite true how you describe it. It's quite incredible. You know, Mats and myself, we come from the same area. We both become number one in the world. It's it's truly quite amazing if you look back and obviously you know we grew up in in, in a great sort of environment we had Bjorn Borg as an idol uh, but then then obviously we played very very differently and I think most of the Swedes would probably played like Bjorn I maybe was an outsider in that way uh, I wanted to play my own game I wanted to find a way where I could play my best tennis. I've always been very quick on my feet, especially going forward. And, and, and I hated long rallies. I wanted to finish the point. I always wanted to finish that point. And I always wanted to take control of the game. And obviously that's easier on the, on the faster courts where you sort of, you get rewarded. I uh, played a lot on clay in summer. That was harder for me, but then sort of at, at the later stage, I developed my kick serve. Uh, which gave me time to get into the net uh, and finish off the points. And so, you know, I found a way on the slower coach as well, but it's, I think it's very natural to me. And I had a coach uh, at my younger age and we, 
it sort of worked a lot on my volleys, a lot on my serve, and uh, things that I really enjoyed doing when I was younger. Stefan, you had a two-handed backhand when, when, when I saw you the first time and, and through your, I would say most probably until you were 14, 15 years old, you had a two-handed backhand. So what happened? How did that come about? Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's nothing that I would recommend anybody to switch their two-handed backhand, especially at the later stage. I think, uh, yeah, there's some other players have done it. Um, I just couldn't generate any power on my two-handed backhand. I think at that time, 14, 15, I grew a lot. I sort of lost the timing a little bit on my backhand. And, um, you know, I practiced a lot on my garage door. And I used to, you know, to have my one-handed backhand trying to imitate some players. And somehow, um, you know, we, I wanted to switch. It was a very, very difficult switch. I had a lot of help uh, going up to Stockholm to Percy Rosberg, who, who helped Bjorn Borg at the youngest stage. He sort of helped me to, to develop my one-handed backhand, but it was very frustrating at the time because, you know, it was my weak spot. And uh, so I sort of developed this strategy. If I come into the net, they're not going to get to my backhand. They're going to get to my backhand volley, which is far better. So it was sort of a strategy move that sort of happened when I got stronger and uh, it worked out pretty well. When I think of another guy that went through a similar evolution, Stefan, Pete Sampras comes to mind as sure. a guy that went from the two-hander to the one-hander at about age 14. And it sounds like it was based on a growth spurt, like what you're describing. And I think about some of your matchups with Pete and in particular, Pete and Boris uh, Becker, obviously, and, and the matches that you played against those two, for whatever reason, those two come to mind when I think about some of the career highlights and some of the best tennis that I ever saw you play. And obviously, fortunately, being a few years older than you, you got to see just about your entire pro career, even the match against Patrick McEnroe in the U.S. Open Junior Final. Oh, I see. (laughs) Comes to mind as well. Looking back, who brought out the best in you? When you went out there and competed, I know you and Matt's had had a couple of major finals as well. But when you played Pete Boris, who, 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 am I missing anybody? All the top players usually brings out the best in your tennis. That's that's the guys that you want to meet. Uh, that's the guys you want to beat. Uh, and uh, obviously, I think most people remember all the Wimbledon finals that I played with Boris Becker. I mean, that's what you do get reminded about from big population of the world. And we had a, a great rivalry in many, many ways. Um, I think it was good for both of us. We were about the same age as Mats and I am as well. He was a year younger. We played a lot as juniors. Um, and then we ended up, you know, really, really competing with each other and pushing each other to the top of the game. So, um, yeah, there were some really, really tough matches that we played. And the amazing thing with Boris is that we only played four times in Grand Slams over the whole career, which is kind of quite amazing. With Pete Sampras, yeah, he was he was an upcoming player um, who got really, really good towards the end of my career. We had a lot of good matches as well, but um, he he was always hard to to play. I mean, he had he had his weak spots, but God, he was tough to play, especially when he got his serve going. He was a tough opponent as well as 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 Boris was because he would always lift his game into the big finals. So, two tough opponents. Stefan, let me uh, go back, and I think that my memory serves me right. Uh, the first tournament you won, I believe, was in 1984 in Milan. Oh, yes. And you happened to beat me in the finals. Yes. And your first Grand Slam was the Australian Open in 1985, and you happened to beat me in the finals. Uh, so, first of all, I remember 
I think that you and I warmed up before the 1985 Australian Open final. We're sitting in the locker room. It's raining. And we thought we're going to play on Monday. And then they said, well, you're playing soon. So, so I guess my, my lead up question to that is, so I was two years older than you. I am mm-hmm. still, might look more now. Uh, I felt pushed by you for sure. And I think having you uh, pushing me made me a better player. Uh, at times I trained much harder because you were around. Uh, I didn't mind losing to you, but of course we all mind losing to anyone. Sure. So I guess I'm going to the Roger and the Rafa and the Novak situation where they're pushing and pulling each other along. Did that happen with me and you and the other Swedes? Because how come we were so many great Swedes at the same time? And how come these three, Roger, Rafa, Novak, have taken such huge steps in the later years? How does that work, do you think, the pushing and pulling each other along? Mm-hmm. Well, competition is always good, whatever you do, whether it's business or whatever it is. So competition is good and pushing each other, that's how you make each other better. And I think it's sorry, it's something that's very sound. And that helped the two of us. And it's quite incredible how many good suites we had during the 80s, you know, five players in the top 10. That's never going to happen again. It was just a very, very special moment for Swedish tennis in the 80s. Um, going to Roger, Rafa and Novak, like I've said many, many, many times, this is an incredible generation, uh, a golden generation. We may not see anything like it for the next hundred years, having three players dominating the game totally for 15 years, basically winning every Grand Slam in the Master Series. Uh, and why is that? Well, they are incredible. Uh, They are incredible as tennis players. They always want to get better. And they're competing with each other. And uh, they're seeing what the other ones are doing. So so it's been really healthy for all of them to have the competition. It's a very, very special time for tennis. The guy that you've had the closest look at behind closed doors of those three, obviously, was Roger Federer because of your coaching relationship with him. In the years of 2014, 2015, which was a successful tenure, he won 10 tournaments. Uh, it seems like your game, as we were describing it, with particularly uh, your, your, your amazing hands and, and imagination and creativity at the net, was an element that would really help Roger's game sort of blossom and maybe be able to handle Nadal a little bit better, perhaps even Novak as well. I think going back 2013 was a tough year for him. He had uh, back problems. Um, you know, maybe he's lost his way a little bit. He needed to get some inspirations. Maybe had some thought about how he can develop uh, his game. And um, at the same time, um, you know, he made a decision to switch rackets, which was very, very important, I think. And that's when I came into the picture uh, in 2014. And, uh, you know, just to be part of his team, um, and I think uh, looking back, yes, we got off to start in Dubai where we met the first time, spent a week together. And obviously, I had thought how he could become a better player. I think he had in his own mind what he wanted to do. And, and that's how we got started, just to you know take it from day to day. And, uh, and obviously, I've been uh, in the same situation as him as well. And, um, you know, and we had a talk and, you know, we wanted to make some changes into his game. And I think we did over the time. And he wanted to be a more offensive player, which I was. And um, 
for him it was more to sort of have some new inputs and uh, some new ideas and maybe a little bit of inspiration to get off to new starts, which he did in 2014. I think, again, switching that racket was very, very crucial going into new technologies. Um, so that's how it all started. Stefan, let me make you uh, blush a little bit because uh, sometimes I get a question uh, of, about my game and, and and they say, oh, yeah, maybe the best two-handed backhand of your generation. And, and I'm like, maybe not. But yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. With you, I always tell people, and I coach a lot of amateurs and juniors, I say there is no better net player combination as a volleyer than you. Uh, because I really feel that the way you cover the net and the, the volley skills when the ball came to you, the combination of those two were the best. John McEnroe might have had better volleys than you, but he didn't cover the net as well as you did. Roger Federer's improvement is obvious to us. He was always a good volleyer, but the way he learned to cover the net, was that hard? Because he's so technical. He's got such great feel, but he became a goalkeeper at the net. And that's how he, I think, won uh, that Australian Open against Nadal. He won Wimbledon. He was a different player. How hard was that to get him to be more physical at the net? Uh, well, teaching Roger is not a difficult thing. He's, he's a very good listener. Uh, he, he knows what to do and he learns very quickly. So that's, that's a good start. Um, yeah, obviously he needed to change his game because there was no way he was going to win matches from the baseline. And as you get older, it gets harder. So you need to take control of the points. And I think um, he needed a little bit more sort of different kind of game with some more variation. And obviously, you know, he's always had a great serve to work a lot on his serve, to take uh, take a position a little bit further into the court where he can even take the ball on the rise and obviously get into the net and finish the point because he is a great volleyer. He always will be and, and have been. So he had the skills to start with, but in order to to get better, you need to do it in match situations. You need to believe in yourself, and um, you know maybe small details make the difference. But he learns so quickly, and he knows how to to really, really make the changes. But I think one of the things that he sort of worked on that really made a difference uh, was you know when he started to hit his backing a little bit flatter, took it a little bit earlier, and that's you know that's how he won the Australian Open in. Uh, 2017 I think it was I must say that you know working with Roger he's very curious he still has the passion for the game he still wants to get better and even even as of today you know I'm sure he's working his butt off to to get back into the game and and give it another shot here in uh, in 21 to to get back to the top of the game I'm going to add to the making Stefan blush thing a little bit when I think of Stefan Edberg the thing that comes to mind is the low backhand volley from just behind the service line off the shoestrings and then just pushing a guy into whatever corner he felt like pushing him into and then taking control of the point from there. And that begs to ask the question, do you guys feel that with what we're seeing in pro tennis nowadays, that that midcourt prowess, that ability to play in transition as well as Stefan probably did better than anyone in the history of the sport is kind of a lost art, something that we don't see as much of and that it might serve a lot of these players well if we did uh, well what can I say um, well it's it's different kind of in my environment to play tennis uh, today I mean at my time yes you could play serve and volley 
all the time with the conditions as they were. It's pretty much impossible today. I would say in order to be the best player in the world as of tomorrow and in the next 10 years, yeah, you need to be a complete player, more complete than you needed to be at the time when we were playing 30, 40 years ago. So it's all about the ability to move on the court, to be able to you know, play defense, to play offense. So, yeah, there's not going to be maybe a, a true specialist as a servant volleyer as I, I was because I did it all the time, you know, practicing, playing matches. Um, and you need the time and the, in order to develop those skills and, and those sort of low volleys uh, at the backhand side, you're not going to need them very often as it is in today's tennis. So it's more about learning to to take control of the point. I think that's that's the key to tomorrow's players being able to, you know, come into the net and finish off the point, whether it's a clean volley or a drop shots. And, um, you know, this sort of half-court play is not going to be on, of great importance, as I see it. Yeah. Well, I, Andy, I think you asked for both of us. I don't have an answer. After Stefan has answered, there is no way I can talk about low volleys. But you promised me, Andy, to not bring that up. Because that makes me feel awful. He had a great return, and there it is, dumped one foot from the baseline on my forehand, and there's no chance I can hit a passing shot from all the way back there. So uh, you promised me that. Stefan, I want to know, you were a very confident tennis player. I think you're very confident in, uh, in real life. You're always extremely nice. You're always well-dressed. I, you've done very well in your life after tennis. What, what would you say professional tennis teach you uh, when you went into business afterwards, whether it's real estate or whether it's uh, the financial uh, market? What, what did you take from tennis that you learned from? Uh, well, I think a lot of sports people that's been through professionals, whether it's in tennis or in swimming or football, there's a lot of things that you can take into business because your sort of working skill as working long hours and working for a, a target or that that's really important and, and wanted to be better and what you do. Uh, you learn a lot about uh, discipline, self-control, having goals. So, so there's a lot of things you can take into business Obviously, when you get into business, you're, it takes time as well because you're not going to learn a business in, in a year or two. It's going to take you five, ten years. But I think something that people also forget, you need to have good people around you as well because you need a lot of advice You know, after you stop your professional career because it's really, really a hard period of your life um, where you sort of have known what to do every day and suddenly you're sort of out in the open ocean almost and uh, where am I going to go? How am I going to do things? So it's it's a tough task, you know, leaving professional sports. Um, but I think I've been lucky in many ways, um, you know, wanted to leave tennis behind and obviously things that was really important to me after my career was my family and seeing my kids grow up and spending a lot of time with them. And now sort of you get into different things where my kids are grown ups. They can take care of themselves and they can even take care of me if they needed to. So uh, yeah, life is, is in, in different shapes. Our very special guest today on kickserveradio.com has been the great Stefan Edberg. And Stefan, who have you kind of got your eye on in this crop of players? You know, we talk about this very special golden era, this golden age with Roger, Rafa, and Novak, but that can't last forever. And the guys that are sort of nipping at their heels a lot, uh, but maybe not necessarily able to completely get over, 
of that crop of players, who do you have your eye on as maybe bursting out and becoming the next guy to win a handful of majors? Absolutely. We've been talking about this for five, six years. Who's going to be the next guy? It's almost right. a lost generation after after Roger Novak with, you know, the whatever, you know, Raonic and this area and, um, and, and Dimitro. You're looking good at one stage. But now, you know, you've been talking about the new generation. What we're talking about is Dominic Tim, obviously, Talked about him for some time. I'm sure he's going to win the French Open one day. He's good enough. Uh, he's, he's old enough. Alexander Zverev, um, you know, he showed some great prospects a few years. He lost his way a little bit, but he's on his way back. I think he's going to be there for quite some time. Um, there are probably some younger players, you know, 17, 18 now, which has some some potential. But those are two of the players that I think we're going to see for a long time is, is Zverev and MTM least for the next few years and I'm sure they're going to win a Grand Slam um, at some point. If you had any advice for a guy like a Denis Shapovalov who seems to have all of the uh, offensive weaponry that you would look for in a guy's game but maybe doesn't have the the screws on as tight necessarily as as, as you guys certainly had in, in your prime is he a guy that you could see maybe bursting through if he was to clean a few things up? Uh, well, definitely. I think he's got all the skills. Uh, he's got the strength, the quickness. And I love to watch him play. You know, he's some some very special guy to watch because a lot of things happening. But, you know, sometimes you, you I mean, even at the younger stage, you, you don't want to complicate things uh, too much. You You need to be able to learn other skills too, to be patient and concentrate on what you're doing. And uh, obviously you need some defensive skills and, 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 and making sure you come to the net at the right time and, you know, be more careful how you play the points. If you change this into his game, uh, maybe into his mind, yeah, he can definitely be up there and that would be really nice to see. Well, Mats, I want to thank you so much for staying friendly with Stefan over the years. <laughs> you, know, you guys had a very friendly rivalry and you guys, you always talk about how much the, the, the Swedish team kind of helped each other along. And it's good to see that still intact as it is. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a really, really, uh, it's been a treat and uh, we look forward to hopefully doing it again uh, in better times when we're not dealing with COVID and some of the things that we've dealt with this year, but we really do appreciate you, uh, you joining us. Thank you. Take care. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, Lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you 
when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. And welcome everybody to this week's Tennis Across America. Very excited to be joined by USTA Utah Executive Director Lori Lambert and lots going on in Utah. Unfortunately, as of today, as we tape, not all good. Um, Thanks, Andy, for having me late last night. The governor um, has put a two-week pause on extracurricular activities uh, for the state Uh, We're trying to understand what he means by that. And we just listened to a news conference where he said private companies like dance studios or gyms and fitness facilities can stay open as long as they are following protocols. So I think a lot of the tennis facilities in our community are going to continue to offer um, lessons. Uh, Utah Tennis has decided that for the next two weeks, we are going to put a pause on our league's and a couple of uh, short format tournaments that we were running during the next week. So we are pausing, but I think the facilities are able to stay open. One of the other things that I wanted to discuss with you, Lori, being that you are the executive director of USTA Utah, is that you're in the loop with uh, USTA's stance on pickleball. The USPTA adopted certain uh, relationships with different pickleball associations, and now we're, we're actually even certifying pickleball instructors but now the USTA seems like they've gotten on board with it. Talk to me about what you're hearing from the crow's nest, if you will. Yes. Um, last week, we were on a conference call with uh, Mike Douse, who's a executive director of National USTA. And someone asked him about pickleball. And he expressed that his threat to tennis is not another sport like pickleball, but that it's obesity and inactivity among the populace. So he felt that anything that gets people out moving is a good thing and that we should be partnering with Pickleball and Padel to keep people active and that by keeping people active in whatever sport, it'll help grow tennis and, you know, and, and all, all the sports. Do you think that there's any risk for players that want to play some tennis and some Pickleball that one might hurt the other in terms of from your, your quality of play, you know, they talked about, well, if you're going to be a tennis player, you don't want to play racquetball because it's so risky. Do you think that the same could potentially be true with pickleball? You know, I'm hearing both. I hear high-end tennis players say my volleys are terrible now that I've been playing pickleball. And then I've heard pickleball is helping their kids with the touch game, that they have so much better hands and so much better ability to create a differentiation of shots than just wham, bam for tennis, that they're learning a lot more touch by playing pickleball. And we think that, again, it'll only, the more hand-eye coordination, the movement, the, you know, it'll only make them better. So we're, we're definitely going with uh, two similar racquetball sports will help you. All right. Pickleball for quickness, reflexes, and just overall good exercise. She's Lori Lambert, Executive Director of USTA Utah. This has been Tennis Across America. Lori, thanks again so much for taking the time to join us on kickserveradio.com, a part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thank you, Andy. And welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Such a treat to have been joined by the great Stefan Edberg. And we're now joined by the third member of our team, Johnny Levine, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. Johnny, welcome. And uh, it's snowing in Haley, Idaho. I know it's not snowing where you are. It's not snowing in Phoenix yet. Um We've had it a few times, but very rarely. It's still actually pretty warm here, waiting for some some cooler 
cooler weather in Phoenix, but uh, I think um, it's right around the corner. All right. Speaking of right around the corner, the London Masters, the O2 Arena, the the, the Tour Finals is is coming up uh, starting November 15th. And Johnny, you pointed out uh, when we were chatting that Andre Rublev, who's been one of the hot sticks on tour, has qualified along with Diego Schwartzman. Now, some of these other guys, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, a couple of household names. But those were the two guys that in particular you pointed out is interesting to see these guys jump into uh, into that level. And I know you're pretty excited in particular about Schwartzman. You're a big fan. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. You got two young guys. Well, not completely young. Rublev obviously is the younger of the two with Schwartzman being, I think, 27, 28 now. But uh, both guys have not qualified for, for London before. This is their first time. You haven't had an Argentine player in there since Juan Martin Del Potro. So, um, it's pretty exciting for, for Argentina to have Schwartz, but I know he's he's super pumped. He has to be super pumped to to squeak out that last spot. Both guys actually could do well in this event. Um, you know, you've got the other mainstays with Djokovic and Nadal and Tsitsipas and team and, and Medvedev. Um, it should be a really, really great event. I, I know it's the last year in London, so guys are super excited Uh to at least get the get a shot to play in London before it moves to uh, to Italy, and then Matt's we were talking a little bit about Andre Rublev in particular, and I kind of made the comment, having watched him play, that I used the term grinder, and you kind of looked at me like grinder. The kid hits every single ball as hard as he possibly can. Tell me what you like about his game, because then after I talked to you and you made mention of that, I started watching him a little closer, and I'm like, man, Matt's is right. This kid really hits a big ball. Yeah, I think what I like about Rublev is that he commits to every single shot um, and he does hit it pretty hard all the time, uh, but he commits to it. And, and so he's committed to every shot, every point, every match. I think that's why he'd be dangerous in London. I do think that if, if some of the guys play at their absolute best, uh, you can beat Andre Rublev. But if you don't, Rublev is one of the few young guys that show up consistently every single match he goes a little crazy sometimes but in a good way uh, he's fiery uh, somewhat like a John McEnroe where the 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 temper helps him actually so uh, I think what I see with Rublev is there is a limitation maybe to the future of his tennis unless he learns to come forwards and at some day some opponents he's gonna have to finish at the net sort of five, six, seven percent of the points that he wins. And so far, he's not doing that. And I think that's where, that's where he needs to improve. It's easy to see where he needs to improve, on the other hand. But he's so committed compared to uh, uh, some of the other guys. They're committed in a different way. I think Sasha Zverev obviously is committed uh, uh, to be the best player that he can be and be the number one in the world. But Rublev, you know, he doesn't have uh, that, that flair that Zverev or Tsitsipas has he doesn't seem to care what, what he looks like on court or, or he's just out there hating to lose. And I love the, the so he, he is a grinder, Andy, like you said, but I think it's more mental than physical. I think physically he's just out there whacking the ball, but he has a grinder's mentality and that's an unbelievably good combination. Johnny, you make mention of the fact that this is the final year that the tour championships will be played in London and it's moving to Italy, which is ironic because if you look at the improvement in what we're seeing from 
the Italian contingency out there right now, it's been pretty amazing. And it started almost at your tournament in Phoenix when we first laid eyes on a Matteo Berrettini. We first laid eyes on a Luis Sanego. Now we're seeing guys like Yannick Sinner, who I know is a favorite of Matt's as well. How impressed were you when you saw that Italian contingency playing right there in your backyard at the tournament, the Arizona Tennis Classic that you run, and then to continue to see these guys? We just saw Luis Sanego a couple of weeks ago beat Novak Djokovic two and two. Yeah, the Italians have really made a, a strong charge. In, in the ATP rankings, there's a lot of great young players. Um, you know how I chop up names. Maybe Mats can help me. There's a new 18-year-old kid. Is it Musetti, Mats? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah, Musetti, yes. Yeah, I mean, you've just got an array of guys with all great personalities. I think Italia, the Italian Tennis Federation must be out of their mind with what's going on in Italy. Uh, Berrettini just just missed out actually again to to make the London finals for the second year in a row, and Schwartzman got his spot. But you know Fognini has been there, and he's a he's a tremendous personality. And Sinego is was great at our tournament. Andy, we, we we were impressed with him. Back to London just for a second. You know it's going to be very interesting to see what happens there because I think and and Matt's can weigh in too. I think that tournament, anyone can win it. Any of the eight guys can win that event. I mean, it's 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 incredible that that Nadal, when you think about it, has never won London, uh, never won the ATP finals. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see. You've got Zverev and Medvedev in the finals of Paris right now. They're squaring off. So Medvedev has has struggled a little bit. We'll see where he goes, but but he could be a, a favorite too in that event. You see it that way as well, Matt. I mean, it is—is is it as wide open as Johnny suggests it is? I mean, obviously, when we go to Roland Garros, wide open isn't necessarily the first thing that you hear to describe it. As long as Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic in the field, particularly Nadal, but this—this this has been different. We saw—I want to say it sounds—it uh, seems like Tsitsipas and team play in this final last year, or maybe that was two years ago. But yeah, we have seen some of the younger players. Is that a function of? The year gets a little bit long, and sometimes these older guys have been at it a while or they're kind of done. Well, I mean, Sasha Zverev won it a couple of years ago. Stefanos Tsitsipas won it last year. Uh, and I think they, they really get helped by, first of all, it's two out of three sets. Um, you can get on a roll uh, in, in there and, and without uh, feeling physically tired. It's a big difference to these guys. And then they also see, they see beforehand the schedule they have. They might end up, you know, Sunday I'm playing Novak, Tuesday I'm playing against Dominic Team, Thursday. So they know their schedule. And I think that when they face Roger, Rafa or Novak in a five-set match in the major, that's like trying to climb Mount Everest. But to play them in a two out of three and then knowing that even if I lose today against one of the, one of the three uh, greats, I get to play again. So I think it really favors the younger guys in that way. Of course, again, it's up to Novak Djokovic. Uh, he really needs to show up uh, in a different way than he did um, in Vienna when he did lose to, to Sonego 2-2. Two and two. It's interesting. Novak is going to be the number one player in the world at the end of the year. That was the reason he went to Vienna, supposedly. Can he fire himself up again? So I'm very excited about the young players. But in the end, to me, this has now become about the race. Rafa 20, Roger 20, Novak 17, should have a good chance of winning the three majors that are not on clay in 2021. 
and suddenly we have three guys on 20. So Novak needs to, I think, set the tone a little bit for what is in store for 2021, and he needs to do it here in London. So I say Novak is a big favorite if the same Novak Djokovic shows up mentally. Okay, when we come back, let's go back in time again. We started kind of looking back at the at the Stefan Edberg, Mats Wielander, Boris Becker, and then into the Pete Sampras era. And now we've kind of come into current times. Let's take a look back, Johnny, because you were around and you were still doing your thing when, when Edberg came up. And I want to get some thoughts from you on what you saw from these guys. Uh, I was watching it certainly from afar. You had a little bit of a closer look. You were at least going to a lot of these tournaments with these guys. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, Tennis On Air with Matt's Johnny and AZ. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we got more right after this. Okay, everybody, you've heard us talk about Squad Pod on the show quite a bit, and I'm now joined by Melise Michael, and he is the product manager for Squad Pod. And Melise, tennis professionals at private clubs with their students, they like to use Facebook to communicate. So tell us a little bit about why Squad Pod might be different from something like just using Facebook to communicate. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. So SquadPod is designed and built around something we like to call closed architecture. Everything you do in SquadPod stays confidential in our U.S.-owned and operated communication platform that's based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Unlike Facebook, where anyone can kind of find your pages, view your discussions, and even your photos, things in SquadPod are non-discoverable. And it's only accessible by specific people that you want to have access to that content. So it's private, it's confidential, and it's secure but how does squad pod handle my data? Cause you hear a lot about these companies that are willing to share it with other companies or even sell it. Yeah. So we don't mine or sell any of your data for predictive analytics or training or anything like that. What you'll find out there is a majority of the social media platforms are actually built on the opposite of what we are, which is open architecture and have no problem selling third parties, everything about you, your decisions, all your data. So within open architecture systems, privacy kind of becomes this illusion almost like a false sense of security. Seems like there's lots of options on the places that I use SquadPod. Help me understand what those are. Great question, Andy. So you can use SquadPod on and off the court with family or even for your business and at work. It's got chat, video, file sharing, and discussions all in one place. Best of all, we're committed to being 100% American-made and protecting your right to communicate privately and securely. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I have SquadPod and I love it. And you know, learn more about privacy and, and squad pod at squadpod.com slash serve. So that's S Q U A D P O D.com slash serve S E R V E. And, and based on this conversation, I'd say that if you have Facebook, there's no reason you shouldn't check out squad pod as a new way to communicate safely and privately. I highly recommend it. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This is our final segment. We again want to thank the great Stefan Edberg for joining us earlier in the show. And Johnny, when we were talking with Stefan, we talked about how it was pretty clear that he had his own style. You know, you saw Borg play a certain way. 
and you saw Matt's play a very similar way. And most of these Swedes had the two-handed backhand and were predominantly a little bit more comfortable from the baseline. And Edberg was anything but that. When you were out there kind of watching these guys and, and in some cases competing against them, how surprised were you to see Edberg's game develop so differently, almost almost the style of an American serving volleyer than the rest of the Swedes? Yeah, it was, it was a unique style for a Swede. Uh, we hadn't seen that from any Swedish player. Obviously, uh, when you think of the greats in Sweden, and we have one of them as our host here, um, we think of baseline play and, and tremendous ground strokes, um, steady from the baseline, and, and Edberg came out, and here was a guy that, that had a similar game to McEnroe in the sense that he was looking to come up on everything, come up on behind his serve. And he had people today think that he had some of the best volleys of all time. And Stefan Edberg will, will always go down as one of the greats. When you think about his record, winning two U.S. Opens, two Wimbledons, two Australian Opens, and for a player of his caliber and the, the style that he played to make it to the French Open final, was quite impressive as well. So, Matt, tell me how how did where did that game come from? Where did he learn that from? Well, we discussed that. I'll, I'll I'll just intercede there real quick, and then it started kind of on a on a fast gym floor playing on wood. Um, but Matt, Matt, I'll let you fill Johnny in on that. We 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 did touch on that though for sure with Stefan. Yeah, pretty interesting that when you bring up uh, where he won, uh, Johnny, because because in there there's four. Grass court Grand Slam wins, two Wimbledons and two Australian Opens. Of course, those days Australian Open was played on grass uh, when he won it in 85 and 87. Uh, so one of the best grass court players of all time. You know, he had a two-handed backhand early on, and, uh, and he, he was not a very happy camper now that he's offline when he was playing from the baseline. We used to kind of imitate Stefan. Remember how he used to blow... Uh, air uh, out of his mouth up to kind of remove the hair out of his forehead. Mm -hmm. And when he was in a bad mood, meaning when he wasn't happy, we kind of used to imitate him a little bit. And then when he started coming to the net, he loved competing and he loved fighting. Uh, And the interesting thing is, and he started touching on it uh, with uh, before, the reason he became such a good volume was because his one-handed backhand was so horrendous early on because he was so young uh, and he didn't have the strength. So he started chipping the ball, coming into the net. And he touched on it, Andy, with us before. That was the only way that he didn't have to hit more backhands was to get into the net. And I really feel like he wasn't a great volleyer early on, but he, he, he started enjoying the game being at the net. And like he said himself, he wanted to finish points. He wanted to be in control. So I think it, it kind of became, it, you know, happened uh, by a fluke that his one in the backhand wasn't great early on and he came in. He had an unbelievable forehand when we were kids. Wicked forehand. Uh, flat, of course, as you can imagine. Um, and, it, yeah, not a good two-handed, but uh, just an unbelievable transformation. Not just in his tennis, but his, in his personality. And he really looked and felt comfortable in and around the circuit once he figured out what he needed to do or wanted to do in a tennis court. So I think it has to do with where he grew up playing tennis. I mean, he played on lightning fast uh, gym floors and we all did in Sweden. Indoor tennis only became popular after Borg won a couple of Wimbledons. And by then, Stefan and I was already 11, 12, 13 years old. So we all grew up playing on lightning fast indoors 
and of course the torturous slow red clay, which was obviously my season, and Stefan um, did not like that at all. But it, it's an interesting transformation that happened a little bit by a fluke, I think. Johnny, ironically, you mentioned that winning each major twice but getting to the final of the French, how ironic do you find it that an American player would be the guy to prevent a Swede from winning the career grand slam by preventing him from winning the French open of all tournaments when Michael Chang beat Stefan Edberg in the 89 French final. Yeah. When you look back at that final, Edberg was a, a probably a heavy favorite, but when you really think of the style of play, he wasn't a favorite. And uh, you know, Michael Chang really had the game to beat Stefan Edberg in that final. And it was a great final. I do want to mention that Matt, you must, I don't know if you ever give Stefan a little ribbing, the fact that, um, you know, he's this great servant volleyer. He had that great career with Andes Jared in doubles. And yet you're the one with the Wimbledon doubles title. And as far as I know, I don't think Stefan ever won the Wimbledon <laughs> double. That, that's a pretty good one that you have. Over. That is true. He, be, he did become number one in the world in both singles and doubles. And that's obviously incredible. Um, but uh, yeah, we played some Davis Cup doubles together, me and Stefan. Uh, when Anders Jerry chose to not want to be part of the team because he was the best player in doubles from Sweden, uh, of course, and I think of all time from Sweden, the best doubles player. But Stefan and I played. Uh, we fought a little bit over who's going to get to return from the ad court, uh, which you can, and you can only imagine why. Uh, I think I won those battles because my forehand was actually worse than his in doubles. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, Stefan, I think he didn't take doubles as seriously as I did in one way, because he didn't need doubles to improve his singles because he played a similar style in singles that he did in doubles. For me, doubles uh, was uh, more of a tool to practice serving and volleying uh, in a competitive situation so that I could then use it and be more comfortable in singles. But I think Stefan just played doubles because that's what we did in those days. I mean, his first big doubles win with Anders Jarrett, 1984 Davis Cup final against the world number ones, John McEnroe and Peter Fleming. And they won uh, that and, and uh, clinched the Davis Cup title for Sweden. Uh, that was the first time in nine years that we did that. He was 18 years old, playing doubles against Fleming McEnroe, and he was the best player on the court. Uh, so I think doubles for him was just such a natural thing. So that was the Swedish slam that year, 1988. He got the Wimbledon singles, but... You got the rest of them, Matt, so I doubt anybody's feeling too sorry for you with regard to not winning that Wimbledon when you're winning everything else in sight. You know, when we look back on that era, guys, one of the things that was so cool about watching tennis and every single name that you mention, whether it's Edberg or Vlander or Becker or McEnroe, everybody played such a unique game. And before that, that crop of players came along, we all were sort of taught to teach specific things. This is the way you play tennis. And everybody just opened up all kinds of doors, whether it was McEnroe dropping the racket head below the hand on the volley or, you know, Edberg with his game and you with yours, uh, you know, and I asked, I think Stefan a little bit about that earlier, but do you think that that's what the game is missing now is that variety? We're just seeing too much of the same. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because obviously uh, you always uh, think about who were the trailblazers in professional tennis. Uh, and let's start, I guess, on, on the men's side. 
you would have to say that Jimmy Connors, with his style from the baseline, uh, when he sort of played with Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith and the Rod Labors, and, and suddenly you get a, a guy playing from the baseline. Bjorn Borg comes along, and then he's the trailblazer. And then John McEnroe, what, what, where does he come from? So I think where Stefan Edberg's greatness is that he fought the tide a little bit, where Borg after him, obviously me, Ivan Landau, and it seemed like we were all going to go to the baseline. And then comes Stefan Edberg, and he pushes the servant volley along. And then comes Pete Sampras in an era where, no, people are hitting the ball too hard from coming to the net. Pete Sampras comes along, and he pushes that style along. Then comes Roger Federer. After, that's after Andre Agassi, where he didn't like the net at all. So I think that's why these, these three guys are so loved, and they are more loved than other players, I think, because their style uh, was fighting the tide a little bit. Uh, and I think it had to do with the bigger rackets for sure, where they could stay alive from the baseline, not with great ground strokes comparably to the other uh, professional players. And I think Edberg was a perfect example. And then, of course, the athletic ability of Pete Sampras, uh, Stefan Edberg, Patrick Rafter, and Roger Federer. I mean, these guys were – we always think of baseliners as being the best athletes. That's wrong. The best athletes are the ones that are able to serve and volley and come to the net. And Johnny, that takes me to your game because I always thought of you watching you in college as just a, just a, a single specialist. I mean, you were so quick and so steady and so determined and, and, and very consistent with your performance level from match to match. Then lo and behold, you go out on the tour and it's not that you're not having a nice run on the single side of things, but your doubles is really where you excelled. And we've talked about it before the quarterfinals of the French open and the U S open in 89 and opportunities to get out there and compete and get wins over some of the players that we've been mentioning during this show. What happened to your game that all of a sudden turned you into a guy that went from our expectations being, well, if Johnny's going to do something out there, it's going to be as a singles player. And, and you kind of proved us wrong. I think my game, um, my return was probably my best shot. And I think I took advantage of that in doubles. I think it's the most important shot in, in doubles. Um, and I think I excelled with that. And then um, my volleys improved as I, that was probably the biggest improvement that I made during my pro career. I wish there were other areas of my game that improved, but the volley itself, I think got better. My hands were pretty good. And then I had a guy that was serving 150 miles an hour to help me through my doubles matches, these big matches, in Eric Carita. So I had a lot of help there. And, and, and also, you know, I struggled a little bit and this is, this is the difference between guys like Mats Vlander that, that were grand slam champions and the rest of the pack was the mental side and how you handle the pressure. And I don't think, I think the pressure got to me in the singles and I had high expectations and didn't handle it well. And I think the doubles, just the pressure was off a little bit. I don't think the expectations were there. So I think I was able to play more freely and I was able to, to hold because I think I was more relaxed and, um, you know, I benefited, like I said, from, from having a great partner in Eric Carita. Yeah, expand on that a little bit, uh, Johnny, and, and also you, Andy, of course, uh, about you, you said something very interesting. Your strength was the return of serve. I, I, and I teach amateurs uh, back home here, uh, and we do doubles clinics and whatnot, and I always feel like the weakest shot uh, from amateurs is often the second serve. They have decent first serves and then they just push the second serve in. 
and and people have in general a hard time to step up to the set to the short second serve and drill a return and first of all the return of serve is so important at any level of tennis how do we get players to step in and take that very short second serve that some really good players have pros have great second serves but amateurs very rarely have great second serves how do we get them to step in take a return and make it more important uh johnny why, why do why is it such a hard shot for people Yeah, I don't know. For me at the pro level, you know, I was able to take the the, the big server's pace and and feed off of that. And so I was able to to take my, like, let's say my backhand, for instance, you know, uh, and I played the forehand court. And so big servers, you know, I was able to use their pace, you know, at, at, at the level, at the club level, you know, if guys are hitting serves that don't have a lot of pace and 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 then you have to generate pace it could be more difficult i think hitting off of the pace is an easier thing and so when you have to develop your own pace it does create a different challenge um but the the key in doubles really when when guys are when people are serving and volleying is you got to get that return down low and that sets up the guy your your partner to be able to poach and and cross and and take that volley off of the server and be able to poach but the key like i said is getting that return low to the ground and and that sets up the stage for the next for to be able to put away the the next shot my advice to these returners of serve is to number one, make the net player invisible in your mind. There's nothing that you can do to control what that player may or may not do. And all you can control is the decision that you're going to make and to not be a second guesser, be decisive, make up your mind when this second serve is about to be hit, what you are going to do with that second serve and stick with that initial game plan, stick with the primary thought that comes into your mind. And I think what happens, Matt, is that, you know, to Johnny's point, he didn't have a hell of a lot of time to think about what he might or might not do. It's just, it's, it's a bang, bang situation. And Johnny had a, had a great short little backswing on the backhand and it was tailor made to go inside out from the deuce court. Uh, which is a super effective shot, which I think is what made Peter Fleming so great playing with McEnroe was that inside out backhand. And I think Johnny had his own version of that, which was super helpful, particularly when you've got a monster like Eric Carita standing next to you. But in the amateur game, you've got all these guys that are giving you head fakes and you're looking at them and you're looking at the server and you're thinking, you know, should I go cross court? Is this a good time to lob? And they think three or four things in their mind. And pretty soon the fifth thing that comes to their mind is, nah, I think I'll just hit it in the bottom of the net. Well, if you stick with an initial game plan and you make that net player invisible and you control what you can control, I think that's the best mentality is to just stick with the first thought that comes to your mind and go with it and be confident with it. So I think that, that what's interesting there, and just to, to, so people can follow this uh, a little bit uh, better, we're talking about the returner's partner poaching. That's one thing we very rarely see. We see the, the, the partner of the server poaching all the time. But Johnny brought up that if you hit a great return, your partner needs to be poaching off of the server's first volley. Uh, that's an area that I think amateurs have a hard time with the timing of that uh, and knowing what is a good return, what is not a good return. And I think that's an area where people can really, really improve Uh, and we should be breaking serve way more often at the amateur level than people do, I think. I think with the return, with, with um, 
you know, people returning serve, they get a second serve and they want to do too much with it. They just go for too much. And I think the key is on a second serve, concentrate on getting that ball down low and that sets up the shot. You don't need to go for too big a shot. You need to make sure that you hit a good return and, and, and keep it low. And then that way the server comes into the net and he's going to hit a, high, a, a volley that's going to come up high. And then, then you go from there. That's the key. And, and I'll just make one final point. If I'm playing doubles with certain players, if I'm playing doubles with a Mats Vlander or a Johnny Levine, I'm going to be less likely to feel the pressure to, to poach as early in a point. If I feel like there's a baseline rally and, and, and back in the day that you guys were doing your thing in your prime, you didn't see a lot of baseline rallies and doubles, but you do in this day and age, even at the pro level, even at the men's pro level, you see a lot of baseline tennis like we never did before. And I think it's important that if you realize that you've got the steadier partner than your opponent, let him out grind that guy and don't feel like you're, you've got pressure to go and, and spaz out and go across because you've gotten a little ADD about the situation. You can also be patient. And I, and I would say, don't feel like you've got to be a poacher off of a return of serve. If you're going to miss, if you're going to miss, then don't be that guy that goes just because you think you're supposed to go. If you're good at it and you can make that play, which I don't necessarily always, I think of myself as a, a, a much better volleyer than I am a poacher. And so as a result of that, I, I, I've kind of talked to you about it, Matt. Uh, I'm kind of the Mike Bryan and the Bryan brothers situation. And I play with Jake Keller, who's the Bob Bryan guy. So I try to be steady, hit a high percentage of my returns in the court, hit a high percentage of serves in the court and let Jake hit a bunch of winners. And I don't mind it looking like a mixed doubles match. If we win, that's okay with me. Sounds like we have a doubles team here. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> yeah, any anyone with Johnny, Andy, for you and I. Anyone with Johnny. Anyone with Johnny is going to get a lot of low hanging fruit at the net. All right, boys, <laughs> great stuff. Appreciate it. We want to thank Stefan Edberg. Hope you guys enjoyed tennis across America this week. For AZ, Mats, and Johnny, hope you enjoyed KickServeRadio.com, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we will be back again real soon. <laughs>